Let me begin by just saying knock knock. Israel. It's real good that you're here tonight. Uh, <laughs> tonight we're going to talk about Israel, but not the nation. Tonight we're going to talk about something that is real. It is real. We are going to delve into truth of the deepest kind, of the most sincere. Not something contrived by man, but something that I am absolutely positively convinced is the way it is. Now, I'll let you know ahead of time, there are plenty, and, and probably men more solidly than myself, much more, who would disagree. There are very good, godly people who take a completely different view than what we're going to talk about and look into tonight. They're very godly, they're also wrong. <laughs> no. As far as I see things, my study of the scriptures, and we we're going to lay it out, and I, and I don't mean to be arrogant, I'm, I'm just playing with you there, but I think the Bible is absolutely crystal clear on this issue. And we're going to look at this, something that is real. Now, quantum physics, and I know most of you have uh, delved into quantum physics quite a bit in your lives, uh, it has taught us something interesting. It's been discovered just over the last couple of decades that what we think is solid is truly not solid. The very chairs that you are sitting on right now are not solid. The music stand that's holding up my notes, my Bible itself, even the flesh and bone on our bodies are not truly solid. What do you mean? Well, quantum physics teaches that, and this is a very, very simplified perspective on it. I may share more of this later on in, in the study, not tonight. But it teaches that basically anything that we would consider solid, like this piano, is, looks solid because it's made up of electrons that are moving so fast that they form a solid mass. What we would consider solid. We can touch it, we can feel it, we say that's physical. That is real. The reality is, is there's all kinds of space floating around in there. But this stand is not so real as we think it is. It's just the electrons are moving so fast that it looks real, it feels real, it seems to be solid, but it's not. It truly isn't. As a matter of fact, in dimensional reality, matter is nothing more than these electrons racing around at incredible rates of speed, giving the illusion of solid mass. In other words, the person sitting next to you isn't all there. <laughs> They're not really completely in your life. Yeah, see, I knew that. I can tell you that. And if they seem a little spacey tonight, you know what? Dimension, no. Frank goes, okay, Rick's really going off tonight. But gang, here's the point. If not for Christ, we would all blow apart. If not for Jesus, we would not even be able to hold ourselves together. And if you're in a place tonight where you feel like you're having trouble holding yourself together, then listen closely. Paul said in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And for him he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yes, Rick, you've read this verse before. I know, but it's so important. To understand that in Jesus all things hold together. Whether the physical tangible things that we think we can touch and seem so solid. Our very lives, our emotions, our hearts, everything going on. It holds together only in Jesus. In Him all things hold together. And by the way, this sheds a little light, this whole idea of quantum physics, on what Jesus said in Luke 17 when He said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And it's very likely, speaking in dimensions, that the kingdom of God is in a greater, a larger, a bigger dimension, but is right here. We're limited three-dimensionally, four-dimensionally, but that the kingdom really is right here. The Greek word for midst, God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst, is entos, and it just means inside. The kingdom of God is inside. Now, Jesus isn't going into some Eastern mysticism or some New Age theology saying, Oh, you have the kingdom within you. You know, let's all float with the happiness of that fact. Jesus may well be indicating that the kingdom is dimensionally right here. We're just not quite there yet. We're still a little spacey, but we're going to get there. This is something that is real. 
Now the kingdom, the kingdom of God, has not come to its fullness yet. It has not reached its, its fruition. And by the way, anyone who say that we are in the kingdom right now, that this is the kingdom, that the church is the kingdom, denies the fact that Satan is alive and well on planet earth right now. And the Bible says that when the kingdom happens on earth, Satan will be bound during that time. And you know Satan is not bound right now. Turn on the news, sit there for five minutes, you will see the work of Satan in the world and unbound Satan. But Jesus will bring about the true kingdom. However, the kingdom is growing. The kingdom is among us. The kingdom is in us, inside. You are part of the kingdom. And we are growing, being shaped and formed. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's difficult. But the kingdom is coming. The point is this. Our physical world in which we live is a shadow of the greater dimension. Colossians chapter 2 verse 17, Paul writes, The things of this world are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance, the substance, the real solid stuff, it belongs to Christ. I want to read you something. I would encourage you, if you've never read C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce, I would encourage you to pick it up. It is a fantastic ride. It's a story, a fictional story, of a bus ride literally to heaven. And then, down to hell. And the character in the book is on this, experiencing this bus trip that lands him in heaven. Listen to just a little bit. I've got to read this to you. This perspective is so cool. The bus arrives in heaven, and the writer says, I got out. The light and coolness that drenched me were like those of summer morning, early morning, a minute or two before the sunrise. Only there was a certain difference. I had the sense of being in a larger space. Perhaps even a larger kind of space than I had ever known before. As if the sky were further off and the extent of the green plain wider than they could be on this little ball of earth. I had got out in some sense which made the solar system itself seem like an indoor affair. It gave me the feeling of freedom but also of exposure. Possibly of danger which continued to accompany me through all that followed. It is the impossibility of communicating that feeling or even inducing you to remember it as I proceed which makes me despair of conveying the real quality of what I saw or, th or heard. Now remember again, this is a fictional tale but he's giving a sense of what it might be like to step off a bus of all things and set foot into heaven. And he goes on and says, At first, of course, my attention was caught by my fellow passengers who were still grouped about in the neighborhood of the omnibus Though beginning some of them to walk forward in the, into the landscape with hesitating steps, I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent. When they stood between me and it, smudgy and imperfectly opaque, when they stood in the shadow of some tree, they were in fact ghosts. Man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them as, at will as you do with the dirt on a window pane. I noticed that the grass did not bend, the grass, the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dewdrops were not disturbed by them. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place, and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they had always been, as all the men I had ever known had been, perhaps. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than the things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy that was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out on my forehead and I had lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young tender beech leaf, lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort. And I believe I did just raise it. But I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood, recovering my breath with great gasps, I looked down at the daisy. And I noticed that I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them I also was a phantom. Who will give me words to express the terror of that discovery. C.S. Lewis is on to something. And again, I encourage you to pick up that book and, and just read through it. But he's on to something. That heaven is more real than anything we have ever experienced here on earth. 
more real, more tangible, more solid than we can possibly imagine. And my friends, if I have learned anything from Scripture, it is this. If heaven is not real, nothing else really matters. But if heaven is real, it's all that really matters. So Father, tonight as we begin our foray into heaven, as we begin to consider and study and think about what's going on in Revelation chapter 4 and following, I pray that you will open our hearts to accept something more real than we have imagined. That you would allow us to see beyond the confines of our traditions and our doubts and our confusion. But that we could walk out of here tonight a little more light-hearted because we have come to understand more of this wonderful plan that you have laid out for us. These things that are soon to come. God bless the study of your word. Help us to see and understand and know these things through your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Revelation chapter 4. Loosen your seatbelts for tonight. We are going to heaven. I want to encourage you, before I read through this, to jot down questions you may have. I'm doing this a little differently. Uh, I, I've been going through old notes. Some of you know this. taught this three years ago. I've been going through the notes and finding that I've just been not changing the major stuff, but just have discovered so many other things I want to add. So it may take us longer to get through Revelation this time around than the first time. However, however, what I want to do here, I, I got about halfway through a lot of pages of notes, and I just stopped and said, you know what, this is all we're going to do tonight. There is something, again, so critical to our understanding about not just getting to the throne room, but, or not just being in the throne room, being in heaven, but getting there that I want to take the time deserved to really talk about that tonight. As I go through, I'm going to throw, a, as you can tell, a bunch of verses your, your direction. Jot things down. If you are confused by something, if you have a question that, that comes up, write it down immediately because when we get through with where we're going tonight, I'm going to have some time, hopefully leave some time, that we can answer some questions and just have some discussion about this idea, this theology, if you will, that you've heard of, the rapture of the church. Let's start in verse 1. I'm just going to read through the chapter and we'll come back and look at some things. After these things, John writes, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy! is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and because of Your will they existed and were created. Let's keep going. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the throne, before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow. <laughs> Wow, what amazing things. What is going on here? What are all these things that John is seeing? How can we possibly comprehend all of this? We will to the best of our human ability. But it's going to take some time. So I want to encourage you to be patient. Even tonight as we move so slowly, but so particularly and carefully to understand some things. Back to verse 1. After these things... The Greek phrase is metatauta. Excellent. Yes, my favorite two words. Metatauta, after these things. You notice that the verse begins and ends with after these things. After what things? After what things? What has happened so far? The churches. Church history. The seven churches. Chapters 2 and 3. Before that, you recall the first thing that happened was Jesus was seen. He was seen in all of his glorified state, Revelation chapter 1. And John was told by Jesus, you write down the things which you have seen and write down the things which are, the things which are being, the church age, chapters 2 and 3. And finally we get to chapter 4 where John is now doing what Jesus said and write down the things which will take place, meta tauta, after these things. This is a great turn of a phrase and it's something we need to note because chapter 4 indicates beginning with and ending with this phrase in the first verse. After these things I looked and I will show you at the end of the verse what must take place after these things. John is making it clear now, now something new is happening. And gang, from this point on John benchmarks this verse as things which are future. Things which are to come. Not the things which are, but the things that will take place after these things. And the rest of our Revelation study is about the future. We stand on the precipice of something that has never happened before. Something that we were made for. Something which has for the last 2,000 years been under construction. The future. From here on out in Revelation, we will look at both the dreadful and wonderful future in store for this world. Who will be there? What it will be like when all of it comes down. We will see the horrific judgments of God poured out on a sinful and Christ-rejecting world in chapters 6 through 19. We'll see a world remade and reorganized under the authority of Jesus himself in Revelation 20. And then we'll get a glimpse of the fantastic new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem, the new creation to come. Revelation 21 and 22. And Isaiah 65:17 tells us, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And I remind you again the word create that you hear God using here. I create something new. Behold, I create. It's that word, that Hebrew word bara, which means something from nothing. So the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth are truly, completely new, created out of nothing, not created from the old. Which to me is a really good thing. Because it seems to me no matter how much we clean up the house, there's still some junk somewhere. 
No matter how much we try to prepare to have friends over, especially during this holiday season, no matter how much we dust and vacuum, there's always something else to be found. And even if the house were perfect, our little dog Reggie likes to leave gifts for us in different places. We cannot get it cleaned up, but God says, you know what? The world is not just going to be cleaned up. Oh, it'll be cleaned up in the coming kingdom. But ultimately, it's going to be brand new. Something you have never seen before, and it's going to blow away everything you have ever known or understood. Now, I believe as much as chapters 4 and 5 indicate that the church is in heaven, and they do, and we'll see this as we get deeper into it. I also believe that verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 indicate exactly how we will get there. How we're going to get there. Paul calls it the blessed hope. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Paul says that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And the blessed hope is the promise for all believers that before the tribulation... Before God begins to pour out His wrath in the world, that the church, His people, will be taken out. That we are not destined for wrath. We will not go through the tribulation. No, we will be safely tucked away in heaven during the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 It's the verse that convinced Tracy. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation for, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who will tell you, even today, no, no, we're, we're supposed to go through it. It's kind of that machismo Christianity, you know? And we're going to go through the tribulation. We're going to fight the battle. And we're going to wear the armor. And we're going to take on Satan and his host. You don't want to take on Satan and his host. I'm telling you right now. And you certainly don't want to try and go head to head with the wrath of God that will be poured out in this world. We're not up to that game. Right now, there is a restraining influence in the world, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I believe. There's a restraining influence in the world. It is the Holy Spirit functioning, working through the church, keeping Satan at bay to a degree. As bad as things are, they're going to be a whole lot worse when that restraining influence is taken out. You do not want to be here. And there's nothing macho about thinking, oh, well, we'll just drive on through it. We'll survive somehow. No, no, you won't. God has not destined us for wrath. That is not His plan for His children in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Paul also says, Comfort, comfort one another with these words. With what words, Paul? Well, in the preceding verses to Revelation 4.18, he talks about the church being pulled out. Take comfort in this. You will not be here when it all comes down. But Rick, how do we know this rapture idea is true? I mean, there are a lot of different thoughts and feelings out there. And obviously the Left Behind series stirred it all up. And people read that and, and they think that fictional novel is, is true. How do we really know? Well, partially, and, and gang, we've got to approach this with a simple mind. It's about the best I can do. Partially before chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 4 and 5 come after chapter 3 and before chapter 6. Did you know that? <laughs> It's kind of the way it works. Three comes before four and five, and four and five come before six. Well, what happened in three? Well, two and three, the church was here. Four and five, we see this very interesting indication that the church is in heaven. Chapter six, the tribulation begins after this picture of the church in heaven. The organization gang of the book of Revelation is not by chance. Any more than the, the totality of scripture is by chance. God has organized His Word in such a way that we might understand what He has planned. In other words, if you follow the literal flow, the biblical timeline given in Revelation 1.19, you will see again Jesus appearing to John in chapter 1. Him speaking to the seven churches of the church age in chapters 2 and 3. And after these things, Jesus catches John up. Literally pulls John out. John, gang, in this is a picture of the church. He experiences, I believe, what the church will experience. And you will see the parallel. And after that, after the church in heaven, then begins the tribulation in chapter 6 through 19. Now mark this, in Titus 2.13, it is something worth recognizing. The blessed hope is distinct from the glorious appearing. Paul talks about two things in that one verse. Two things in that one verse. Again, reading it to you, he says, We are to be looking for the blessed hope and, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. The blessed hope and the glorious appearing. 
Two distinct things. Well, how do you know they're distinct, Rick? Let me give you a short list of biblical distinctions between the rapture of the church, which is the harpazo, that's the Greek word for being caught up. It's the Latin word raptus, it's where we get the word rapture. Distinctions between the rapture and the glorious appearing, which is the time when Jesus actually reappears on the earth. These are both talked about in Scripture. There are some, and I was raised with this this theology, I guess you'd call it, that it all happens at once. You've heard it, the second coming of Christ. It's that bland, generic, kind of blue stripe special way that Jesus is going to come back. It all just kind of happens at once. The second coming, Christ comes, judgment happens, church goes to heaven, that's it. And well, what happens in heaven? Well, we float around on clouds with harps and stuff, I guess. I'm not really sure. It's kind of boring. It's floating around for however long, eternity. And that's what I thought. Oh, it just kind of all happens. Okay, I, I, I encourage you to look closely at this. There are two very distinct aspects of the second coming of Christ. Two different things that he does. And they are clearly distinct. Here's, here's a list for you. I'll go through this kind of quickly, but if you're taking notes, you can jot it down. We're going to jump back and forth between the rapture on the one hand, the glorious appearing of Christ on the other. Here are some differences. By the way, while I give you this, um, some of these things come out of verses that we're going to read or have already read. Some I will just throw verses at you very quickly. And they're all listed up here, so you can always jot them down if you miss them. Number one. In the rapture, believers are immediately made immortal. In the glorious appearing of Christ, people on earth remain mortal. Distinction number one. Distinction number two, and again, if these, it's going to be hard to write all these down, so I'll tell you right now, do your best, take shorthand if you're taking notes. You can get them from me afterwards. I'll leave my notes sitting up here. But number two, in the rapture, Christ comes for his own. In the glorious appearing, Christ comes with his own. The church returns with him, which is one of the most stunning understandings I have ever had in my life. When I saw that, it's like, oh, wow. It's fantastic. Jude 14, Zechariah 14:5, Matthew 24:31, and Revelation 19:8 and 14 talk about this, explain this, point toward this, that Jesus comes back with many thousands, the Bible says, of his holy ones. Many of you have heard this phrase, it's hagios in the Greek, it means saints. And it is never applied to angels in the Bible, only to the church. Jesus comes back with many thousands, or many multiplied millions of his hagios, his holy ones. So Christ comes for his own in the rapture, he comes with his own in the glorious appearing. Number three, in the rapture, believers are judged for rewards. There is a judgment that happens. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says that we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The word judgment is bema. It's the bema seat, which was a seat similar to, if you think about the Olympic Games. And in the Olympics, when you ran the race and you won the prize and came up to the platform or podium, it was called in Greek the bema. And it was there that the judge would sit and judge the running and based on the performance would give out rewards. And Jesus says, Behold, I am coming and my reward is with me. He says that in Revelation 22.12. That's for believers. That happens in the rapture. Believers are judged for rewards, are given rewards. But in the glorious appearing, the nations are judged for kingdom entry. They are judged to see whether or not they will enter the kingdom. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. You may have heard the parable, the sheep and the goats. It's that story about how Jesus says the Son of Man will come and He's going to separate the nations as, as, as someone would separate, separate sheep from goats. The sheep are going to be led into, ushered into the kingdom. The goats will be cast out. That is not talking about the church, my friends. That's talking about those who survived the tribulation and those who are either for Christ or against Him at the end of the tribulation. We'll get more into that further into the Revelation study. Believers are judged for rewards in the rapture and the glorious appearing nations are judged for kingdom entry. Number four, in the rapture, only the elect will see Him. Matthew chapter 24 verses 37 through 41 describe this event where one is taken and one is left. Only the elect are going to actually see Christ. It'll be so instantaneous and happen. It's a moment the Bible describes of a catching up where the world is left going, wait a minute, you know, we were sifting wheat together and where'd he go? He was just here. 
We were grinding at the mill. Where'd she go? We were just here together. The world will not see this, but in the glorious appearing, the Bible is very clear, every eye will see him. Distinction. You cannot have it at the same time both ways. And Jesus describes in Matthew 24 two very distinct comings, one where he is seen, one where he is not. Number five, in the rapture. The rapture comes before the day of wrath, and the Bible is so clear about this. It comes before the day of wrath. The glorious appearing comes after the day of wrath. Number six, in the rapture it happens without reference to Satan. It just happens and Satan isn't even mentioned. But in the glorious appearing, Satan is grasped, he's chained up, he's bound for a thousand years. In the rapture, we meet Jesus in the air and we are whisked away to be with him in heaven. In the glorious appearing, Jesus himself, Zechariah 14 tells us, sets foot, actually I believe it's uh, Zechariah 12, he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, and sets up a kingdom. That's a very different thing. Is he coming to whisk us away? Are we going to meet him in the clouds? Or are we going to meet him on the top of the Mount of Olives? Two different events. Number eight. The rapture is in the Old Testament concealed. In the Old Testament concealed. While in the New Testament revealed. The glorious appearing. Is both in the Old Testament and New Testament um, revealed. Now, I do want to mention this, and you can find a whole lot more than just these examples. There are hints of the rapture all over the Old Testament. It's not specifically spoken of or directed to as it is in the New Testament, but there are hints everywhere. If you're looking for them, oh, Rick, they're just hints that you're making up. I don't think so. Genesis 5.24. Flip back there, will you? Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. I love this because it's just a single verse, and I just want you to see it with your own eyes. For the first time in history, a man is caught up. A man is raptured. We have an Old Testament example of someone who is raptured, who doesn't die, who just goes to be with the Lord. Another example will be Elijah. We won't talk about him tonight, but in Genesis 5:24, it's talking about Enoch. Look in verse 23, it says, All the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I just love that verse. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. No burial, no funeral. Family didn't even know. I mean, he just went out for a walk one day and never came back. He went missing, MIA. No Enoch. Why? Because God took him. And the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5, tells us more about that. I want to just reference that in your Bible. I'll read it to you. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up. It's the rapture. And it's the first instance that we see of it. So there are pictures of it in the Old Testament. There's also another one we talked about this morning. Very interesting. I had never seen it before. In the book of Ruth. We talk about how Ruth is this wonderful story about Ruth, this Gentile woman who comes to Naomi, a, a Jewish woman. She marries Naomi's son, Naomi's husband, and Ruth's husband both end up dead. And so they head back together, the Jew and the Gentile, to the promised land. But what's amazing about the book is though it is the book of Ruth and it's about Ruth, it ends without Ruth there. She's gone. When Naomi gets the baby, when Naomi begins to understand when she has the baby on her lap, Ruth is gone. There are pictures like that all throughout the Bible. I mentioned this morning that Naomi went on ruthlessly. I just thought I'd share that again because I thought it was pretty funny and it was right on the spur of the moment. I didn't even think that one up. And this morning it just hit me. So be impressed. Number nine. Number nine. The rapture, and this is an important distinction, the rapture can happen at any time. At any time. Mark 13:32. Because no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not even the Son. Only the Father knows when this will happen. And it can happen any time. It can happen before we're done tonight. Some of you are again saying, I hope it does. <laughs> I do. I won't have to finish. I hope it happens. But it can happen. The rapture is described as an event that no one will foresee. No one can track. No one knows when it's going to happen. When it does, boom, it'll be so instantaneous, we'll be blown away. However, the glorious appearing is a very different thing 
the glorious appearing can be calculated to occur exactly 2,520 days after a false man of peace signs a contract or covenant of peace with Israel. That's an interesting distinction because either it's one way or it's the other way or both are true. And the fact is the rapture can happen at any time. But the glorious appearing of Christ can be calculated. Yes, the number is 2,520 days. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, describes this plan that God has left for Israel. The years that God has left for Israel. I don't think I have that one up there. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And it says that midway into this tribulation period, three and a half years in... No, actually, sorry. That's wrong. It says that Antichrist, a man that people will think is a man of peace, will sign a covenant with Israel, and from the beginning of that covenant to the end of time will be seven years exactly, and Christ will come back. So, if the rapture and the glorious appearing were the same event, we would be able to calculate the coming of Christ. All we have to do is watch on the world scene. Oh, Israel just signed a seven-year peace treaty. Start the countdown. We can know to the second exactly when Jesus is going to come back, 2,520 days. But the rapture is described as something that no one will know. Only the Father, until the moment it happens, you will not know. Important distinction. At the rapture, we go, quote, to a place prepared for us, Jesus says in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. That's a place in heaven. However, immediately following the glorious appearing, Jesus sets up a throne of rule on earth. One is about being caught up to go to a place prepared in heaven. The other is a place prepared in earth. And by the way, if that place prepared in heaven is our eternal home, why then would God need later to introduce a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem? It's a seven-year apartment building, if you will, that will blow away all things that we've ever known on earth. It is a blessing. It is a gift. And I'll tell you something. There will be people saved after the church is caught up. After the church is raptured, but they're going to miss out on that wonderful place Jesus has been preparing for 2,000 years. That is a gift for those who believe in Christ. And that will be a wonderful thing, a safety that we are, again, tucked away in heaven. Where are we? Number 11 on the list? Number 11 in the rapture, the heavenly, t- the heavenly stay, I've already kind of said this, the heavenly stay is short term. It's seven years. The church is caught up, there for seven years, comes back with Jesus for his millennial reign in the glorious appearing, the earthly stay, is a thousand years. So again, as we walk through these things, we see these distinctions in the way that this coming of Jesus is described in the Bible. After that, again, God creates that new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem for our eternal home. Now you may say, okay, Rick, all that stuff... Is interesting, and I hear these distinctions, but isn't the whole rapture theology just kind of escapism? Isn't that what it's all about? Well, exactly. <laughs> That's what Jesus said. Be, but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Would you not want to escape the wrath of God being poured out? I do. And if you want to call me a wimp, fine. I'll be there. Having a great time. Playing volleyball with Michael, and I don't know what we're going to have up there. But there are more distinctions I don't have time to get into tonight, but suffice it to say that it's hard work to try and blend this one concept of the rapture to blend that with the other, other concept of the glorious appearing that Paul describes as two separate events in Titus 2.13, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Christ. Now, if you're still having trouble understanding this or believing maybe your own ears or your own eyes, believe John's. Believe John's. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, he says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. First thing that happens, John looks up and he sees a door standing open. And what does an open door say to you? Come in. Come on in. You've been invited to a friend's home for dinner and you drive up into the driveway and the front door is wide open. Do you stand on the porch and go... Or do you walk on in? Hey, we're here. Door's open. John sees this door standing wide open. Our home is open. You're welcome here. We read this last Sunday morning, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. The beloved is saying to the bride, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one. Come along. 
Behold, the winter is past. I'm going to share something with you. This verse 11. Behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. I worked for a church in Virginia for three years as a youth pastor. And when I left that church, they gave me this beautiful framed kind of artwork. And it was blue with a white turtle dove on it. It was just a really beautiful picture. And this verse was there. Behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. I was like, are they saying something about my ministry here? I'm leaving and the winter's past. Anyway, the flowers, it said, the flowers, Song of Solomon 2.12, the flowers have already appeared in the land. By the way, did you know that Jerusalem, that Israel, is the second largest producer of flowers in the world? Go back 50 years to Israel. 70 years, 80 years. It was a desolate place. It had been trashed over the centuries. Back in 130 A.D. when Emperor Hadrian finally drove out the Jews. Or was it? I guess it was later than that. It was 150. 130 to 150. Somewhere in there I'll look it up and get back to you. But Emperor Hadrian came in. You know what he did? He salted all the lands of Israel. Literally had salt brought in to destroy. And it did. It decimated the lands. Then a tree tax was later placed on the land of Israel. So that if you had trees on your property, you were taxed for them. What did the people do? Cut down the trees. And the land was absolutely destroyed. It is not or was not the same land that was described as the beautiful land in the Old Testament. It is now. At least it's getting that way. Second largest producer of flowers in the world. And it tells us, Song of Solomon 2.12, the flowers have already appeared in the land. The time arrived has arrived for pruning the vines. And the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. That's interesting. The beloved is calling to the bride and saying, come away with me, come away. Um, some pruning needs to take place. Pruning would be a picture of things being cut off and thrown into the fire. Pruning in the Bible is a picture of tribulation. And so he's saying, the beloved, to the bride, come away. The flower's here, but pruning's going to take place. I don't want you there for the pruning. It says in verse 13, the fig tree has ripened its figs. You know all the, well, maybe you don't know the teaching on the fig tree, the picture of Israel. And Jesus saying the parable of the fig tree, that when it's blossomed, you know that the summer is near. In the same way, you know when the fig tree is putting forth its leaves, you know that the end is going to be near. What's the fig tree? Well, I believe... The Bible talks about it as a symbol of Israel throughout. Interesting that in 1948, the tree began to blossom again. Israel is a nation. And the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, says the Beloved. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. It is the invitation of the open door. And this is the first thing that John sees. is a door standing open, standing wide, and then Jesus calling. And what does he say? At the, and the first voice, John says, the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. John sees a door standing open in heaven. Then he hears a voice like a trumpet. It's the same voice, by the way, that he heard back in chapter 1. It's still Jesus. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. John describes the voice twice this way. The sound of a trumpet. I, I hear a trumpet voice. Why do you keep telling us it sounds like a trumpet, John? Well, partially because it did. But also I think John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is drawing our attention somewhere else. He's trying to help us see something else. Flip in your Bibles back to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Now some of you may be very familiar with these verses. As I studied and went through this over this last week, I thought, you know, we've got to be clear. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. So it may be some review for you. That's great. That's a good thing. It may be brand new, but watch this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. Well, let's go back to verse 13. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him, God will bring with Him, note that, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep 
in Jesus, those who have died in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, Paul, so what's going to happen? Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's the phrase where we get rapture. Caught up. It's the Greek word harpazo. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. And gang, if we're going home after the tribulation, there's nothing comforting about that. You're going to be there for seven years. You're going to go through it. And it's going to be painful and hard. And you're going to watch literally billions of people massacred but comfort each other with these words. I don't think so. You will be spared all of that. And even if life is hard right now, remember the book of Revelation, though it is prophecy and history, prehistory, it's also encouragement, poetry. Jesus is sending a letter to a church that at the time of its original receipt was in horrible persecution. And he's saying, there is reason to take comfort. It may be bad now. Life may be hard. You may not know what you're going to do tomorrow. You may be under the hammer or under the gun in all sorts of ways. But listen, it's going to get better. Take comfort in the fact that Jesus is going to call and you are going to go home. And the voice says three words. Come up here. The voice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I hear the voice. It sounds like the trumpet of God. And what will the voice say? Well, Revelation 4.1, John tells us, come up here. Come up here. Everybody out. Come on up. It's time to come home. Now, I remind you at this point that prophecy is not what might happen. It's what has happened from God's perspective. This is not just a blind hope. This is a truth. It is a reality. It is real. And I believe fully, gang, that the Spirit whisked John up out of time to experience something of the rapture of the church. That what John is seeing here is not just a vague vision. He was experiencing what we will experience. He was seeing it. He was in that place watching it happen. Well, why doesn't he mention the rest of the church coming up with him? Would you? <laughs> I wouldn't. I'd be so transfixed on Jesus and on what he was doing. So John is caught up as a picture for the rapture. Now you might say, but how am I going to know for sure? I want to know for sure. Anybody had that thought? I want to know absolutely for sure that I'm saved, that I'm going home when he calls. How, how will I know? What if I miss it? You ever had that moment where you walk home? This happened to me before. I walk into the house and Cheryl and the kids were all there a moment ago and now they're not there. I'm like... You know, like Cheryl's jacket is on the chair and her watch is lying on her jacket and I go... Did I miss it? Listen, the Bible is clear. You will not miss it. You can't miss it. Ever been sitting at a football game and someone with one of those big air horns blows it behind your head? Trumpet of God. It's time to go! We will go and you will know it and you will not miss it. However, however, a lot of people will. A lot of people will not hear it. Kind of like the bell in the Polar Express. We just watched that last night. The little bell. You've got to have faith and believe for it to ring. That's so pathetic. But it's a good example, I think, of something. If you have faith in Christ, if He is your Lord, you're not going to miss it. You don't have to worry. Comfort each other with these words. When he says it's time to go, you will go. I also want to remind you that in the first three chapters of Revelation, the word church is used 19 times. It will not be mentioned again from here on throughout the entire book, but once. And that is part of the epilogue where Jesus says in Revelation 22:16, I have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Jesus is wrapping it all up. And I want all the churches to know this. But the churches are mysteriously and obviously absent beginning from chapter 4 all the way on through. And in chapter 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. It's there. We may not see it tonight, although we may. It depends on the Father. We may not see it in our study tonight, but we'll get there and we'll see it, Lord willing. 
So after these things, after the church age, the church is off the stage. The church is out of here. As J. Vernon McGee put it, the church is off the air because the church is in the air. I love that. In fact, you could put it this way. The church is no longer the church. You realize there's a time coming where the church will cease to be the church? We're not going to be the church anymore. What do you mean by that? The Greek word that we use to translate church is ekklesia. It's a combination of two words, and this often happens in the Greek. It's the word kaleo, which means to call, and ek, which means out of, to call out of. And we understand this word in an historic and practical way that the ecclesia is those who are called out. We're called out of the world spiritually. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John said, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father. It's from the world. The world is passing away. And also it's lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so you've probably heard sermons or Bible studies. Be out of the world. You are called out. We've been called out, called to holiness, called to be different. The ecclesia, the called out, it's historic, but it's also prophetic game for the ecclesia will be called out, literally. Called out from the world. And at that point, the church will no longer be the church because once the called out has been called out, we no longer have to be the called out. You get that? It's just where we are. It's where we will belong. And so Jesus says, come up here. I'll show you what must take place after these things. Now, I realize I'm belaboring it a little bit tonight, but there's a reason for that. It's the reason why we haven't gotten out of verse 1 yet. It's the same reason why the phrase after these things is repeated twice in the same verse. It's because the Lord doesn't want anybody to miss the rapture, either academically or practically. Academically speaking, as we study the Bible, we should be able to see it. And this is where, by the way, I started four years ago. When I seriously questioned this whole rapture theology and everybody getting all excited about the Left Behind series, which, by the way, recently I've mentioned has kind of turned the other direction and people are more challenging and questioning it again, as opposed to saying, hey, maybe this is really what's going to happen. And as that series came out and things were being talked about, I began to question where my thinking was. And I told myself, you know, if this idea of the church being caught up, pulled out before the tribulation is legitimate, I should be able to find it. It should be obvious. And if not obvious, then I'm going to step back from it. But if it's here, if it's clear that I'm going to believe it. God doesn't want us to miss things, gang, in the Bible, academically. And I'll put it this way, I think people miss things in the Bible simply for one reason. They have not read it. If you read it, it's there. The Bible, gang, is ours for the feasting. If we'll take our questions and our doubts, even our dusty old traditions, if we will take those back to the Bible, we will find the truth. We will understand what God really teaches. But unfortunately, many people take the Bible by assumption rather than consumption. What do you mean by that? Well, people will say, oh, the Bible's just allegorical. How do you know? Well, the Bible's just a book of moral teachings. Are you sure? Well, the Bible's not 100% accurate in its prophecies, is it? Have you checked them out? Have you studied them? Have you compared? Do you really know? People love to hammer on the Bible. But start asking them the true scriptural questions. Can you give me a verse in scripture to back that up? And they will back down very quickly because the reality is most people assume things about the Bible. Whereas God would say, I gave you my word to consume it. To eat it up. Feast on it. Get into it. Have you studied the messianic prophecies that have already been fulfilled in Jesus? They're mind-boggling. Stunning. Amazing. As we come into Christmas, every year I find more and more prophecies that were fulfilled in the birth of Jesus alone. Stuff that he had no control or power over. But they're there. And they're in the Bible for us to understand. God does not want us to miss things, prophecies, the rapture, academically. It's here. But he doesn't want us to miss it practically either. In other words, when it actually happens. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to know. Your being here tonight to study through the word is proof positive that you would like to be aware. 
And I believe that the Lord is pleased. And I believe as Revelation tells us, Revelation 1-3, that you will be blessed. That you will be blessed. Well, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And if something as the rapture is so important, there is something that's as important as the rapture appears to be in Scripture, again, we should be able to find it. And I give you a few verses just to help you out. Okay? I'm saying it's there, gang. And I have gone back to this, and I have gone back to it critically, because I was not raised with a tradition that believed this way. You need to understand that. I came at this with a fresh mind saying, okay, prove it, God, prove it. And he has, he has to me. There's a flight boarding for heaven. And it's God's heart that everyone's on that flight. Well, chapter, uh, verse 2, <laughs> it was one verse. Boy. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit. And that's all we're going to cover tonight. Because I have to tell you something about that. Immediately, the literal translation, John says, immediately I became in spirit. Okay, what, what does that mean? Immediately, John is saying, I became in spirit. Immediately, and listen to this, my flesh was of no consequence. I was immediately spiritual. Oh, not just, you know, feeling all religious after a good Sunday morning. I was in spirit. I was of spirit. I was spirit. Immediately, he says. Two things to understand more about the rapture. Number one. Number one, the change in us will be immediate. You may want to flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's an eye-twinkling change that is about to take place, gang, and Paul describes it in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. There it is. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Behold, I tell you a mystery. By the way, I've got to tell you something. <laughs> I've got a lot of things to tell you tonight. I tell you a mystery, Paul says. There's something new. I've got a secret for you. Something that was in the Old Testament concealed, but now is in the New Testament revealed. Something I want you to know. It's about how you're going to be taken out. We're not going to sleep. We'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And he goes on and describes something. People who are anti the idea of the rapture of the church and this whole theology will often point to a man named John Nelson Darby. And they'll say, oh, Darby's the one who came up with that whole thing. And he came up with it in the 1800s. It wasn't even taught in the church for thousands of years or ever, some will say, wrongly. It wasn't even taught in the church. It was Darby who came up with it. And, and what was her? Mary McDonald, I believe, was her name. These other people, or two or three people, and prophecy was starting to be of interest to people in that day. And so he just kind of came up with this thing. It's illegitimate. It doesn't work. God told Daniel that things would be sealed up. Certain things would be sealed up until the time of the end. Which I believe is exactly what happened. The reality is that the rapture was talked about specifically, plainly, and clearly in the first century church. Even beyond the scriptures. If you wanted to stick to Paul and James and John and the others, Peter, they talk about it in the scriptures. But it was also talked about and taught on in the first century, in the second century, in the third, all the way up to about the time of a man named Constantine and another man named Augustine. You may remember these names. And suddenly, the book was closed. The idea of a pre-tribulation rapture was set aside for a different theology. The church will bring in the kingdom. The kingdom is now. Hey, we got, we got the government. The church is doing great. We're all dialed in together here. Oh, it's a new and glorious day on planet Earth. It's a post-tribulational theology. We're gonna, we've already been through it. It's been 283 years of terrible persecution for the church. We're done now. And now the kingdom is here. Augustine taught that in his famous writing, City of God. 
and the teaching has continued on down through the ages truly for about a thousand years if not a little more the idea of the rapture fell silent and was not taught about in at least most churches wasn't viewed wasn't understood historically until the mid 1800s or so when a lot of things began to stir like God stirring in the heart of Jews to return to Israel that there would even be a nation of Israel is mind-blowing. And there were people, prophecy scholars back in the day, who couldn't believe, who were taking different perspectives than a rapture theology, because, hey, there's no nation of Israel, so how could any of this stuff come true? And I got way off, I didn't mean to, but Paul says, I tell you a mystery. Yeah, it's a mystery, until the time is right for the mystery to be understood. And the time is right, because the time, gang, is now... I truly do believe we're living in the end times. But he says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. A couple of things to know about eye twinkling change. Number one, the change in us will be immediate, which is really good news. How fast is a twinkle? Pretty quick. I mean, you've probably seen a twinkle before. Or a blink, some versions will say in the blink of an eye, and they have actually calculated a blink is around one one trillionth of a second. Pretty quick. A blink. The Greek word here for twinkle is repay. Repay literally means instantaneous. Instantaneously, we will be changed. It's not a long-term process of spiritual transformation. It's not like that old Jeff Goldblum movie, The Fly, you know. Changing now, I'm going to be glorified. Ow! Oh, it's not good. Okay, we're getting there. It's instantaneous. Boom! You're changed. Completely different. Glorified. It's not a study program. Those of you who can't stand school, it's not a workout regimen. Thank you, Lord. It's not a self help class on the mechanics of angelic flight. It is an instantaneous thing. Boom! You go. You're changed immediately. And I look forward to that. Do you find yourself, even on a really good day, doing or saying or thinking something that you wish you hadn't done, or said, or thought? You go, man, I wish I could just change. Why do I keep going back to the old ways? Why do I keep doing the things that I keep doing? Doggone it, I, I'd like to get free of this flesh. And there is coming that time when he calls us instantaneously, we will be free. Done. Gone. Wonderful. Guys, sometimes even the, the thought of change is so exhausting. <laughs> it requires so much out of me that I just don't want to do it. I don't want to deal with change. Computer technology. I've had it. I know all I want to know and I don't want to know anymore. Andrew Campbell, when he was down in Costa Rica, emailed me, Hey Rick, you got to get Skype. Skype. What's Skype? Oh, you can talk to anyone all over the world through your computer. And I'm like, enough. <laughs> I can't take it. We just got digital voice for our phone. I don't get that, but at least I can pick it up and call like I used to. Don't give me the new stuff. It's so much, there's so much change constantly. I don't know if I can do it. And that's exactly the point. Paul puts it this way. Wretched man that I am. Romans 7.24 who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It will be in a blink of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, instantaneous change. But John also reveals here that not only will the change be immediate, but the change will be permanent. Permanent. People have asked this question to me before. Okay, so the church is raptured. We go up to heaven, but we come back with Jesus for that thousand year reign. So can we screw it up again? <laughs> Can I blow it one more time? No. No. Why not? You've already been glorified, gang. And once you're with Jesus, you will be with Jesus forever. Wherever He is. He's coming back down to earth. Oh, saddle up, gang. Let's go. We're going to be where He is. But we will be in our glorified state. No longer in the sinful body that we're in right now. Praise God. The change is permanent another issue with change that I have trouble with. I call it the baby diaper progress. Every time I change, I discover we got to change again. 
If you've ever had a child or babysat a child, you know that it just never stops. You change and like five minutes later, it's like, do you smell something? I do too. Oh, man. And that's what it's like in our lives, but the change will be absolutely permanent. Look at verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. No backsliding, gang. No disappointment. No more falling down. Our sins will be relegated to the long-forgotten past. You don't have to worry about it. When that happens, you are glorified and the sin life is gone for good. John says, we know when he appears, 1 John 3 verse 2, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that is Jesus, purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. Jeremiah 31:34. God says, They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. But God, gang, is not the only one who will forget my sin. I will too. And this is some of the best news of the night. When that instantaneous change happens, my sin life will fall away and it will be forgotten by me. And I am so thankful for that. Isaiah 65:17 For behold I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So John saw the open door. John heard the trumpet voice call, "Come up here." And immediately he was in the spirit. And my friends, this is real. This is truth. As Revelation 21:5 tells us, "He who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new." And he said, "Right, for these words are faithful and true. Now, what else did John see in heaven? We'll find out next week. And I pray, Father, anything that hasn't been clarified or understood tonight. I know there's so much involved here that we would come to a complete understanding. And that we would rest, Father, secure in the change that is about to happen. The fact that it will be immediate and, and will be permanent. The fact that when you call, we will go, that we can't miss it. And as we said this morning, Father, I just pray that you would help us to be people who don't count the days, but count on the day that you come again and we hear that trumpet call and we just go home. God, thank you so much for blessing us with your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.